Of course, the book of Jeremiah. These are some keys to remember. Jeremiah was conflicted. He was a prophet of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he was also a patriot of Judah, uh, much like the scenario that we are in in the United States of America, a country that was built on biblical principles. It breaks our heart to see us. Uh, of course, Dan mentioned one of the uh, senators making a statement uh, in last week in Congress that, you know, the Bible has nothing to do with America anymore. And that breaks our heart when you recognize that any greatness that we perhaps had laid hold of was because of the faith of our framers and founders. Uh, God called him to preach repentance to the Jews and warn them of the coming judgment. And as a result, many of the Jews accused him of being a traitor because he was saying that Babylon was coming. He got to a point where he said, Babylon is going to defeat us. Just submit and surrender because this isn't Babylon conquering us. This is God punishing us for our disobedience. Of course, two threes. Remember the three major prophets or three that are contemporaries here. Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah all ministering largely at the same time. Jeremiah beginning earlier and being the senior of the three. And of course, the three conquests. Sometimes that can be confusing. But Jerusalem was actually subjugated three different times by Nebuchadnezzar. The first time in 606, they surrendered control but weren't conquered and destroyed. In 597, they had rebelled by stopping paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar sent the troops back down to bring them into order. And again, they surrendered without being destroyed. Now, again, those first two, Daniel was taken captive in the first uh, captivity. Uh, uh, Ezekiel was taken captive in the second captivity. And then finally in 587, uh, at the end or toward the end of Jeremiah's ministry, Nebuchadnezzar came back down for another rebellion and this time destroyed the city and leveled the temple and burned it to the ground. Of course, the period of time of Jeremiah's ministry was some four decades and covered the reign or partial reign of five different kings beginning during a high point during the reign of Josiah. Where as we're reading through the Chronicles, we would say, wow, that was a spiritual high point for, for Judah. Well, apparently not. Uh, Josiah was truly uh, repentant and surrendered and had a tender heart for the Lord. But much of the country was just going through the motions and was still, their hearts were still in idolatry. Well, after his death, of course, one son reigned briefly. Then another son reigned for 11 years under the subjugation of Nebuchadnezzar. Then after his death, his grandson, Josiah's grandson, reigned for a brief period of time before the second conquest. And then finally, uh, the uncle, Zedekiah, another of the sons of Josiah, ruled for the last 11 years, and ultimately the city was destroyed entirely. Now, last week we had talked about Jeremiah being called by God to go down to the area of the potter's field and watch the potters work on the wheel. And there, God was giving Jeremiah a message that he was to bring back and give to the Jewish leadership. And of course, uh, well, just a reminder, this where the arrow is, that was the original city of David. Just like in, in our city over the years, 
When mom and dad first moved to Edmond, there were only 6,000 people in the city of Edmond. In fact, Interstate 35 was way out in the boonies. You had to leave Edmond High School and literally go through the wilderness to get to I-35. Well, as you can see, we've not only captured I-35, but gone well beyond it as over time the city has continued to grow. Well, the same thing here. The ancient Jebusite city that was captured by David was that small red uh, circle there towards the center bottom of the screen. That was, in fact, the original city of David. And, of course, you remember when God was judging uh, for because of Jerusalem's sin uh, that uh, David bought the threshing floor uh, and, and this upper area was now part of the city and that area was dedicated for the future building of the temple to God. Of course, David was given permission to gather the materials, but his son Solomon was given the privilege of building the temple. And then, of course, the city continued to expand across the Central Valley from Mount Moriah, which is actually where the Jebusite city and and, uh, the temple was, across the Central Valley to Mount Zion. You go the other direction, east across the Kidron Valley is Olivet. Down south, you have the Mount of Evil Council, where Solomon's uh, pagan wives dwelt. And then up north, Mount Scopus, the highest point that looks over the city. This, again, you saw this, I believe, last week, looking from the Mount of Olives, you see the temple complex, the triangular narrow city of David on that peninsula between the Hinnom Valley and the Kidron Valley, and that's the point of this geographical lesson. The Hinnom Valley is where the potter's field was. As a matter of fact, Zechariah had prophesied about the potter's field being purchased with the ransom money that was used to betray the Messiah. As a matter of fact, Zechariah 11 had prophesied that the good shepherd would be rejected and paid off for 30 pieces of silver. And, of course, we know that's exactly the price that Judas Iscariot sold Jesus for was 30 pieces of silver. Of course, Judas repented that he had, he didn't repent and come to Christ, but he repented for the wrong that was happening. And he brought the 30 pieces back to the temple priests and and gave it back to them. They said, they threw it on the floor. They said, a deal's a deal. And of course, we know that Judas went and hanged himself after that. But the priests had a little bit of a problem. They had blood money. They were too greedy just to throw it away, but they couldn't put it in the temple treasury because it was, in fact, blood money. So they used it to prepay some expenses. They bought a potter's field so they could bury indigents at their expense in future. And it's amazing that 500 years before this all happened, it was specifically laid out in the book of Zechariah that that was what would happen, and that is what did happen when Judas betrayed Jesus, and the temple priests did, in fact, purchase the potter's field with that. You see, that arrow there points to the area called Akeldama from the Hebrew word dam, which means blood, this being the field of blood. And this picture was taken from uh, an area, actually a Catholic church called Gallicantru, which was Caiaphas's house, which is where the mock trials began the night of Jesus' arrest. This is a close-up of that potter's field now that was purchased with the 30 pieces of silver. It's now a Greek Orthodox uh, monastery. So remember in chapter 18, God had told Jeremiah to go down and observe the work of the potters. In verse 6, he said this, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as with the potter? So if the potter is starting to build his, his, his craft 
and the product is not turning out the way he's expecting or desiring, he can, while it's still soft and malleable, mesh it all back together and start all over again. But there comes a point where the clay is hard. And at that point, it can't be remolded. It can either be used or discarded. That is going to be ultimately the point that we get to in Jeremiah 19. But Jeremiah is taught by the Lord to give this message to the Jewish people. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so is Israel in my hand. And he went on and said, there are two things that can happen. You can either as a nation, if I have pronounced that judgment is coming to a nation, and that nation repents, then I will stay my hand of judgment and will in fact bless that nation if it repents and turns from their evil and turns to me. Likewise, if a nation that I have promised blessing on, this being particularly the nation of Israel, and also Judah, when you consider after the civil war, the division of the two nations and what ultimately happened to both, if I have promised blessings on one and they disobey me, then I will, in fact, punish that nation as well. Of course, this was a message to Judah and to the capital city of Jerusalem. And it wraps up and says this, Now therefore go, Jeremiah, and speak to the men of Judah, which we're going to see in the introduction of chapter 19 tonight, and to the inhabitants, the citizens of Jerusalem, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I'm going to bring some tough stuff upon you because of your evil ways. If you obey me, I'm going to bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to punish you. Just as the potter uh, holds the clay in his hands, so I hold you in my hands. We don't have time to get in this. I touched on it a little bit last night. And that's not the point of tonight's lesson. But there has been a lot of error that's come out of uh, the study of Romans chapter 9. And this concept of predestination where God chooses some and predestines them to heaven and predestines some to hell. When you recognize the foundation of what Romans 9 is being taught out of, i.e. this passage in Jeremiah chapter 18, 19, and 20, you recognize that God is sovereign and God does create some vessels that will experience His wrath and some vessels that will actually experience glory on His behalf. But we find the distinction being those that obey Him and trust Him are the recipients of blessings. And those that disobey Him and defy Him ultimately are the ones that receive the judgment. So when you recognize, and quite frankly, it's like when we go through the study of the book of Revelation. One of the reasons Revelation is an enigma to so many is that most New Testament Christians don't have any idea what the Old Testament says. And without a firm foundation or knowledge of the New Test or the Old Testament, the New Testament really stands on nothing. It's just suspended in midair. But these references all have a foundation and are explained just like a key used to be in the corner of the old paper maps that we had. It's much easier to understand what God is saying through most of the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation. And then in some of the more Jewish messages, like in Matthew and Jude and James, when you have a solid foundation of what we call the Old Testament. So, carries on. Chapter 19, with that foundation. Jeremiah has been down. He's seen the work of the potters. He's learned the lesson from uh, Yahweh. 
Now he is being sent back to take the message to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and, in fact, the leaders uh, of Judah. Thus saith the Lord God, go and get a potter's earthen vessel. You can see a picture of one up in the corner there of the map. And take it to the elders from among the people. Uh, Take it to the elders from among the priests. So, in other words, I want you to go and take this message to the city council and to the ministerial alliance. And I want you to bring them to the same spot that I just had led you. And go forth into the valley of of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee. And say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, the kings of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's who I'm addressing. Thus saith Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of God's armies, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I am going to bring evil upon this place. The which, whosoever heareth, his ears are going to ring. Well, why, Lord? Why are you bringing evil? Because you have just predestined some to heaven and some to hell? No. Verse 4, because they have forsaken me and have estranged this place and have burned incense or offered prayers and adoration unto other gods, notice with a small g, idols, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence, and have built also the high places of Baal. That's the supreme deity is what the term literally means. Every country would have its supreme deity, uh, these pagan gods, of course, under the Roman pantheon, it's Olympia, or Olympus is the, is the, isn't it Olympus is the high god of the Romans, and Zeus is the high god of the Greeks. Every, every pagan culture has its supreme deity. Baal is this supreme deity of paganism. And what are they doing? They're offering their sons and daughters in the fires of burnt offerings unto Baal, which I never asked for, nor spake it, never crossed my mind, God said. Therefore, behold of this wickedness, the days come, saith the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. The Hebrew word for drum is tof. When you add the et, it's a feminine form of a plural. So it's, it's no more going to be called the place of the beating of the drums. And I'll explain what that means here in just a minute. It's no longer going to be called the valley of the son of Hinnom, but it's going to be called the valley of slaughter. Now again, you see here looking to the north from the southern part of the city of Jerusalem. You see this area here is the ancient city of David. And of course, Othniel's threshing floor, not Othniel, but Ornan the Jebusite's threshing floor up here. This at one time was a very distinct valley giving protection on two sides, the Kidron Valley and the Central Valley. This here is the Hinnom Valley, which is the focus down there, you see in the lower right-hand corner is the area uh, of the potter's field, Tophet, the place of the drums. What they would do is in their drunkenness and drug-induced um, orgies and then in the, uh, the, the, the consequential sacrifice of these unwanted children to the gods Baal, Ashtaroth, and Chemosh, they would beat the drums so loud as to try to drown out the cries of the children as they would heat these cauldrons and then toss the babies into the fire or put the babies, as you can see in this drawing, on the red-hot iron skillet of these pagan gods. 
Now, folks, we're all sitting here and we're grossed out when you consider that. But recognize this. We are doing the same thing in the United States of America. God created us as sexual beings and created children as to be His reward uh, entrusted to parents to raise in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Sex was not supposed to be a dirty word. God gave it to be held sacred between a husband and his wife. However, Satan has deceived. He has seduced. And now we have sex with anything or anybody at any time in any place. And if there happens to be an unwanted pregnancy, we have concocted this woman's right to choose. What does that mean? It means a woman wants to have the ability to murder her preborn child. But whereas they would beat the drums so as to drown out the cries, we conveniently do it while the baby is still in the amniotic fluid, has no air in his lungs, and we simply cannot hear. Let me tell you, we are no less accountable than they were. And when you see, you're going to see some of God's judgment. It ought to strike fear. One of the reasons we're doing this study in Jeremiah at this point, why I felt led to go into Jeremiah midway through 2019, I could see what was coming with what we witnessed, the theft of that presidential election in, 2009, in November of 2020, and we see the policies that are now being enforced by this godless administration. Folks, if God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, He's going to judge America. If God judged Judah, He's going to judge America. This is a picture of the Hinnom Valley. Beautiful, beautiful area there, as you saw in the diagram. You know where it's located. This is actually it. God says this, God had promised blessings upon Israel, but Israel disobeyed. God is going to judge them as a result. He says, whatever plans you thought you had, I'm changing them. I'm going to make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. And I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies. And by the, Now, you can see why Jeremiah was so popular. Uh, as he's preaching this message to the community leaders and to the spiritual leaders down there in the Hinnom Valley. By the hands of them that seek their lives and their carcasses, and I will give their bodies to be meat for the fowls of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city desolate. And, and people are going to go by and just go, Psh, wow, <laughs> cannot believe that that was once a city. Everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and hiss because of the plagues thereof. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their own children and the flesh of their daughters. And they shall eat everyone the flesh of his friend in the siege. And straightness, that means being confined, wherewith their enemies and they that seek their lives shall straighten them. God has got an amazing way of humbling us. And we can either humble ourselves and be spared as Nineveh was, or we can be humbled as we are going to see Jerusalem. Now, what are we talking about here, eating the flesh of the sons and daughters? This is looking up towards the, uh, uh, the uh, temple area from the base of the Kidron Valley. Now, you've seen this view from the top of the Mount of Olives many times. But this shows you just how severe the elevation incline is going up to the walls of the city. This is in the east, in the Kidron Valley, looking back towards the west. That actually is what's called the Eastern Gates today. Now, this is from the city of David looking north up the Kidron Valley. Uh, you can see down there in the lower part to the right, up far to the right is the Mount of Olives. Off in the distance is the, uh, as Mount Scopus. 
But notice the steep incline going up the hill before you even get to the walls of the city. Now, you'd recognize that without aircraft and mortars, that city is basically impregnable to attack. You are going to have your hands full to try to drive up that hill and then try to uh, scale the walls when people are shooting arrows at you and throwing spears and throwing rocks and everything else. So the invading army, what the Babylonians did, in fact, what the Romans would do in 70 A.D., is rather than showing up on day one and laying siege to the city and losing tens of thousands of your own troops, they would literally just build a fence around the city and camp out for a year, two years, ten years, whatever it took. They were eventually going to starve out the city. And then once the city was low on supplies and their bodies weakened, or they came to the point where they were just ready to surrender because they were so hungry, that was the strategy. Save themselves a lot of troops in trying to conquer the city. They would just starve them out and wait them out. God said in verse 9, I'm going to cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. In fact, they're going to eat everyone the flesh of his friends in the siege And straightness, in other words, I'm going to surround them, I'm going to confine them, I'm going to box them in with their enemies. Now, before Israel had ever even crossed the Jordan River, being led by Joshua in the first place, God told them in the book of Deuteronomy what He would do for them if they obeyed, and what He would do to them if they disobeyed. One of the judgments is found in Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 53, says this, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring the enemy upon you, and he's going to box you into your cities, and you're going to wind up eating the fruit of your own body. You're going to wind up eating your own children because of the straightness as you are surrounded by your enemies. Isn't that amazing? 800 years before it actually came to pass, God told them what was going to happen if they disobeyed. Now, let me ask you, whose fault is it that they disobeyed? Their own. Boy, you want to feel sorry for him, but you really can't. You know, I'm sure every one of you as a parent came to a point where you you got serious with your kid. At one point in time, you said, if you do that one more, I'm going to paddle you. And what do they do? They do it one more. So what do you do? Well, you better paddle them. Otherwise, you're going to be lying to them. God told them exactly what was going to happen. And then Jeremiah, after four decades of fruitless preaching to his own people, having his heart broken and being accused of being a traitor. At the same time, Jeremiah wound up living inside the walls of the city and experiencing this siege himself. And in the book of Lamentations, he records uh, some of the tragic events that took place inside the walls of the city during this 18-month siege. said this about the people, their visage is blacker than coal. In other words, they are sullen, they are depressed. They are discouraged. They are without hope. You can't even recognize them in the streets. Their skin, literally, is just covering their bones. It's withered. It's become, they look like sticks. They that be slain with a sword are better off than those that die from hunger. These that pine away, stricken through the want of not having the produce of the field. The hands of these women that should be pitied have cooked, made stew out of their own children. They were the meat in the destruction of the daughter of my people. As I said a while ago, ladies and gentlemen, 
it breaks our heart when we see what's going on in our country. And recognize this, none of this has taken God by surprise. He has put us here at this point. We are special. He has put us here and called us to active duty at this time. Now, one of three things is going to happen. Either we are going to see a revival come about in America, and we are going to see God extend His blessing upon our country as He did to Nineveh. That's one of the reasons that Dan and I are working so hard, and our church is working so hard, trying to see America change course. Second thing that can happen is the rapture of the church. Next thing on God's prophetic timetable is taking the body of Christ out, and the focus is going to once again be on Israel. Understand, as you look through Daniel chapter 9, you see no pause between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel. We know that that's because the age of the church was hidden in the Old Testament. Paul talks about the mystery of the church and it being hidden in Ephesians 3. Jesus talks about it in His mystery parables of the kingdom. There was no positive affirmation for Israel to have rejected her Messiah in Zechariah 9.9. Israel couldn't say, oh, we had to reject the Messiah because of the church age had to fit in between Zechariah 9.9 and Zechariah 14.1. There was no redeeming quality there. Israel was just disobedient and deviant and was judged as a, as a result of it. So either we are going to repent, change direction, or we're going to be caught up, and then the 70th week of Daniel, the time of the tribulation, the seven years where God pours out His judgment on planet earth and purifies Israel to receive her king. Or option three is we are going to continue to erode, and we are going to be much like Jeremiah, experiencing persecution by his own people. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 1, God told Jeremiah that his own enemies were going to be his own kings, his own priests, and his own prophets, and his own family. Wasn't Hey, our enemies, what, what have we found out? It's not the red Chinese, although they are our enemies. We have found out in our own country, many of our enemies are our own people that have sold us out. They've defied God and defied our declaration of independence and the principles upon which our country was founded. Okay, Jeremiah, you've told them this message. You, you, I, I talked you down here in verse, chapter 18. I showed it all to you then. You went back up. You got the, the chiefs of the priests. You got the community leaders. You brought them back down here in the potter's area. You've given them this message that I told you to give them. Now, as a point of emphasis, verse 10. And I want you to take this, this earthen vessel, this potter's craft, this water jug, and I want you to shatter it right before this group of political and spiritual leaders from Jerusalem. And I want you to tell them, thus says the Lord of armies, the Lord of God's armies, the Lord of hosts, even so, I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. And they shall no more bury them in Tophet. Till there be no place, or they shall bury them in Tophet until there be no place to bury them. In other words, I'm going to fill the valley of Hinnom with their dead bodies. Thus will I do unto this place, saith the Lord, to the inhabitants thereof, and even make this city as Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled in the place of Tophet because of all the houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense. 
unto all the hosts of heaven and have poured out drink offerings unto other gods. Now understand, we live in Oklahoma. All of us have houses with shingles and 6 and 12 or 8 and 12 or 9 and 12 pitches. We don't spend a lot of time on our rooftops. However, for the Jewish home, the rooftop was like their patio. They would be up on the second floor, able to enjoy the coolness of the day and the breeze. And they would, even though Josiah had repented as the king, the people were still lost in idolatry and were openly worshiping idols in the privacy of their own rooftops. God says, because of that, I am going to judge you. Now, after Jeremiah had finished down there in the valley of Hinnom, he went straight north to the court of the temple. Verse 14. Then came Jeremiah from Tophet, whither the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood right in the court of the house of the Lord. And he said to all the people, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to bring upon this city, and upon not just Jerusalem, but all of Judah, Judah, all of the towns, all of the evil that they have pronounced against it, that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks we sit there and don't know what that's talking about, but think, if you, you have worked in agriculture, have ever led a, a donkey or a horse or a, or, a, or a cow or something, if you pull the horse in one direction and he stiffens his neck to try to fight against you, that's the idiom here. They have stiff necks. I'm trying to pull the reins and get them to turn around and redirect them, but they're fighting against my calling. Uh, because they have hardened their necks that they might not hear my words. Now, continuing on into chapter 20, this will be briefer. Now, Pasher, the son of Emmer, the priest, who was also the chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Now, under David, King David, the priesthood had grown to the point that they didn't need all the priests working at the same time. So David divided the priesthood into 24 divisions, 24 courses that would serve for two weeks periods at a time. And then they would all come together and serve during the high feasts in Jerusalem. But uh, this particular man and pastor could be a name. It could also be an office and most likely was. Just like uh, uh, Caesar was a person, but it was also an office. Just like president is a person, but it's also an office. Uh, just like Pharaoh is a person, but also an office. Now, Pasher, now which particular Pasher? The son of Emer, the priest, who was the chief uh, of the capital security, so to speak. He was the captain of the temple guard. He heard Jeremiah's message, and he arrested Jeremiah and had him scourged and put in stocks on display in the northern gate there, the Benjamin Gate. Now understand the city of Jerusalem, right along the Hinnom Valley to the north of it was the tribe of Dan. To the south of it was the tribe of Judah. So that north gate going out of the city was the Benjamin Gate going, I'm sorry, Dan, tribe of Dan, I'm sorry, Dan was later, but the tribe of Benjamin. So that north gate was the Benjamin Gate. He said they, he took Jeremiah, he beat him, had him beaten with a whip, and then put him in stocks. And as I understand it, these weren't your typical stocks. Like you see in pictures during the colonial ages, these were stocks where the head and two hands and two legs would all be in a row. If you can imagine that kind of discomfort, being on display, humiliated, in the Benjamin Gate. Now, 
Jeremiah had all sorts of rumors spread about him. We've read uh, about that. They had tried to silence him. Uh, They had excommunicated him from the community. They'd even made threats against his life, as we have studied in past weeks. This is the first recorded violence against him, and it was just going to get worse. Uh, Imagine being beaten bloody. And, And remember, Jeremiah was a type of Christ a man of sorrows, uh, the, 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 the weeping prophet. And of course, uh, Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was in fact a man of sorrows that wept over the city as he approached Jerusalem during that final week uh, prior to his triumphal entry or the day before his triumphal entry. Imagine the, the, the humiliation and the pain and the discomfort having endured all that And the next day when he was released from the stocks, he went right back and got in Pasher's face. Then said Jeremiah unto Pasher, The Lord hath not called thy name Pasher or um, uh, security uh, on every side or broadness on every side, but instead your name is Megar Misabim, terror on every side. Which, by the way, they had mocked Jeremiah using this same name saying, you're just a doomsday prophet. You're always talking about judgment, blah, blah, blah. Well, now it's been four decades. Nothing's happening. You're just a doomsday. Well, uh, he spun it on them and said, Pastor, you're going to be the one that's called terror surrounding you because that's exactly what's going to happen. Verse 4, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself, Pastor, and to all thy friends. And they shall fall by the sword of their enemies. And, Pasher, you are going to witness with your own eyes all of this. And I'm going to give Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. And he shall carry Judah away captive into Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the strength of this city and all the labors, all the fruit, all the work, all the wealth of this city um, unto the hands of the king of Babylon. And you, Pasher... And all that dwell in your house, your wife, your children, your, your brothers, you're going to go into captivity. And you're going to go to Babylon, and you're going to die there. And you're going to be buried there. And all of your friends that have been false prophets prophesying lies. Not any wonder that nobody liked Jeremiah, is it? This kind of preaching, is, as Dan talked about on Sunday, doesn't make a lot of friends. Nevertheless, while we aren't trying to be offensive by our actions, truth will always offend the lie. Now, after this confrontation with Pasher, Jeremiah is alone with God. And and I believe verse 7 is probably, and the verses following are some of the thoughts that he had the night before. While in pain, while in the stocks, having suffered the humiliation and the punishment because, well, why was he being punished? Because he had disobeyed the Lord? No, he was being punished because he was doing exactly what the Lord had called him to do. He said this, oh Lord, you misled me. If you go back to chapter 1, God said that He would be like a brass wall. He would not be defeated. Well, obviously, Jeremiah assumed that he was going to be victorious. No, God said you're not going to be defeated. 
Also, God didn't say you're not going to experience pain and suffering. Jeremiah kind of assumed those things. And he said, Lord, you misled me. Lord, you weren't shooting straight with me. I trusted you. I told you in in, in chapter 1, I wasn't the man for this job. I said I was too young for this job. And quite frankly, it's my fault. I allowed myself to trust you. I allowed myself to be misled. That's what he's saying here. Folks, I'm not saying it's right to say that. But understand, Jeremiah loved the Lord passionately. And his heart was broken. This wasn't just some wild accusation. Jeremiah obviously was wrong in his conclusion, but he was brokenhearted. He felt like God had betrayed him in all this. But how could I resist you? You're God. But look at me. Here I am. I'm a laughingstock. I'm ridiculed daily. Every day, everyone mocks me. Ever since, when did my troubles begin? Well, when I began preaching. When I began going out and crying out these prophetic warnings to the community, well, that was the day that they all began hating me. And notice the, the reasoning here. Lord, I go out and preach truth. When I preach your truth, I wind up being hated and suffering for it. I don't like to be hated and suffer. Therefore, I want to quit preaching truth. However, I can't stop. Preaching the truth. I make the statement frequently that Dan and I are either too stubborn or too stupid to quit what we're doing. And we all would love to see a a different reception as we preach this message of repentance to our own people. However, how can we, knowing truth, abandon the truth? I must tell you, I I never was a fan of the movie The Matrix. Quite frankly, I saw it one time about a year ago. I wasn't one of those people that that was attracted to it at first. I really kind of wanted to watch it to figure out what everybody else was talking about. And I can say I've watched it, and I still don't know what everybody's talking about. But there was one thing, the one guy, what is Keanu Reeves, wound up taking one pill, right? Whatever color, was it a blue pill or red pill? What, blue pill, never mind. Uh, Anyway, uh, that's a joke you'll get later or when you, once you get on the wrong side of 50. Uh, but he, he had this particular pill and all of a sudden his eyes were open. And he couldn't unknow what he knew. Let me tell you what, there are times where you go, boy, I wish I, wish I could just not know what I know. But the reality is, just like Jeremiah, we know the truth And even though it may be hazardous to our health, it may be hazardous to our careers sometime, nevertheless, we can't stop. We have to speak the truth. He goes on, verse 10, For I have heard the defaming of many. Everywhere around me, people are trying to intimidate me, Jeremiah is saying. Everybody's telling lies about me, trashing my reputation trying to listen to every word so they can trap me in my words or build a case against me. Even my own friends and family are part of the effort to silence me. Verse 11, Jeremiah encourages himself 
with what he knows to be true. He says, but the Lord is with me as a mighty, terrible one. Ladies and gentlemen, let's always remember that although there are times it may not feel like it's true, it may not look like it's true, but we know that it's true. Because God's Word is true and cannot be broken. Jeremiah was crying out for God's intervention. And he knew, he said, Lord, uh, the Lord is with me. I know this as a mighty warrior. Therefore, I know that one day my persecutors are going to stumble. They shall not prevail, and they didn't. They shall be greatly ashamed, for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion Their embarrassment shall never be forgotten. And quite frankly, look at us. We're now 2,500 years after the fact, and we're still reflecting on the terrible decisions that they made there in Jerusalem. But, O Lord of hosts, that triest the righteous and seest the reins in the heart, (laughs) let me see thy vengeance on them. For unto thee have I opened my cause. Lord... It's up to you. I'm putting my case in your hands. What what does the Scripture say? Vengeance belongs to who? Yeah, that's where Jeremiah was at at this point. And I would say that the first part of verse 12, O Lord of hosts, thou that triest the righteous, purifies as silver is pured, and the refiner's fire. I would, just dawned on me, James 1, where we are told to count it all joy. When we find ourselves experiencing some sort of trial, and of course, as we have taught on before, you know, when you find yourself in a trial, make sure it wasn't the result of a stupid decision. Make sure it wasn't the consequences of bad behavior. But if you find yourself in the middle of a trial, and as you're giving an account, you're going, wait a second, Lord, best of my knowledge, I haven't disobeyed you in anything. I've done things the right way. I've tried to do things the right way, yet here I am in the midst of the refiner's fire. Then recognize that you are just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being given the opportunity to glorify God in the midst of the fire. Verse 15, or verse 13, saying unto the Lord, Jeremiah is... We, we recognize this prayer life. Let me just read through these verses. We'll make a couple of comments. We'll be done. Sing unto the Lord and praise the Lord. Why? Because I survived the last 24 hours. He delivered me from the stocks. He delivered me from the beating. He brought my soul, my life. He spared my life, even though I experienced that great suffering through the hand of these evildoers. Praise God. Thank you. But he still laments the pain of his calling. And he still is asking God to intervene. He wants justice. Cursed be the day where I was born. In fact, not only does he want justice, but how many of you, I know everybody in this room because of your age, have seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Remember the old idea, I'd been better off if I had never been born. I was um, in a conversation with one of our church members on Monday of this week. Monday morning, spent the morning together uh, experiencing an, unexperi- an unexpected crisis in life, and uh, I made the reflection that um, we won't realize the amount of influence we have had on and in the lives of others and other people 
until one of these days when we're at the judgment seat of Christ, being rewarded for our faithfulness in service to what God has called us to do. Quite frankly, for example, my father pastored a church. As dad pastored out here for 29 years, this little congregation ran from a, a number of, of as little as 19 to as, uh, probably a, as large, probably never got above, what about, 65, 70, 75 maybe? A big day, yeah. Dad toiled faithfully for 29 years with that size congregation. And now we are 25 years later, and we're on the radio in two states, reaching about 30 million people. And we have a, uh, a, a, well, I'm not sure if you would call this a successful or effective ministry, but we still have a ministry here. And you know what? Fruit is still being attributed to my dad's account, to my uncle Walter's account. He worked here with dad for many, many years. So the work that's being done and the impact that each and every one of us have in the lives of other people, don't shortchange yourself. Don't, don't doubt what God is doing through you. Robin, you're a perfect example. Imagine, I can't imagine all the lives that you have already touched and will touch. Now, if you had your choice, you'd probably say, you know, Lord, I'd rather have not been thrown off the horse and been in a coma for a month. I'd rather just, yeah, you're, that's true. But God is using, and who knows how many people's lives you're going to touch, touch how many people's lives. I, I was at a, a, a Walmart you know, Dan can tell you, and those of you that have spoken publicly before can tell you, there are times where you step out of the pulpit and you go, boy, that was a great day. Man, that was wonderful. And then there are times where you step out of the pulpit and you go, wow, that was wide outside in the dirt, went all the way to the backstop. That was a real miss. Many years ago, uh, when we were still attending First Baptist, so this was probably almost 30 years ago, uh, I was asked to speak to the youth group at First Baptist. And for some reason, I went in and I gave a way, probably, well, I look, way too serious of a talk to a group of teenagers. And I remember after that event, I thought, boy, that was poor judgment. The boys were there. They, they, they were there through that period of time. I thought, man, I really missed that opportunity. And uh, I, you know, I, just, I was just convinced that that was one of those times where, boy, I wish I had a do-over. I ran into a young couple at one of the department stores uh, here in Edmond. It may have been one of the Walmarts or something, probably four or five years ago. And uh, they, it was a young, really handsome, married couple, probably 28, uh, 30, somewhere that. They had a couple of small kids and, and uh, pushing around in the cart. And they said, Pastor Blair, you won't remember us, but we were in the youth group at First Baptist Church years ago. And you came and spoke to our youth group, and we both got saved that night. And now we're married, and we've got our own family. And you know what? If you had asked me, I had totally busted and bombed, and that night was a complete waste. However, look at the fruit that was born, and look at the fruit that will continue to be born in their lives and in the lives of their children on down. Jeremiah here is saying, I, I, I wish I was George Bailey. How many of you know, remember George Bailey? Of course, yeah, a lot of you. I, I wish I'd never been born. It'd been better off if I hadn't been born. Cursed be the day that I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bear me be blessed. Don't even, don't even celebrate my birthday. 
By the way, if you haven't already bought me a present, it's not too late. You can go ahead. And I'm still accepting presents, although we're two days past. Cursed be the day where, okay, cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father saying, you have a son. Let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew. And let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at the noontime. Because he didn't just kill me right there on the spot. Or why didn't I, yeah, bless you. Why didn't I die in my mother's womb? If it had been better off, I'd never been born. Verse 18. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb? Why, Lord, did you birth me? Why did you call me to this miserable, fruitless job? Four decades of preaching and being hated and persecuted to see the labor and my sorrow. My days should be consumed with shame. Wow. As we've talked about many of these nights, you wouldn't say that he would consider his ministry very successful, would you? Hard to believe that Jeremiah is considered the senior of all the Old Testament prophets. He is the top of the heap. Yet, if you were to ask him, he had concluded that his, that his ministry was a complete and utter failure. 